Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's at our Princeton, New Jersey office. Ira, this is your Federal Reserve. If anything goes wrong tomorrow, I'm blaming you. But I guess the big issue is they've got a the tablecloth that you're wearing today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've got a tough road to hoe. They've got to keep us out of a recession while reigning in inflation. How do they do that? Yeah, I'm not sure that they can. And in fact, you know, our view has always been that they have to slow the economy uh, enough in order to get inflation down. And, and the big thing right now that that's likely to keep inflation afloat is uh, is the wage picture. And when you look at aggregate aggregate labor income, it keep, it's growing at nine percent year on year, even though overall inflation is slowing. That's basically staying uh, staying steady. So you can wind up in a situation where inflation is a bit more persistent than the, the Fed really wants. So, um, so, so I do think that they're going to have to hike. Although that's good, right? I mean, if we can get everything else to slow down and just wages rise, that's nice. Well, yeah, real income growth would be phenomenal. But the problem is, is that the is that real income growth is likely to to mean that core inflation prices remain very sticky. Um, and so, so one of the so so one of the big challenges for the Fed is going to be how do you you know how do you thread that needle right and 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 they haven't been able to do that five of the last six times that they've had hiking cycles and the one time that, that they kind of did thread that needle in the early 1990s you had a very significant mid cycle slowdown that felt very much like a recession um, the the only reason why you didn't hit a recession is because you only got like a one and a half percent increase in the unemployment rate you didn't get a two percent increase right but, so, well I mean I don't, it did the market doesn't seem look people don't really think that the fed can thread that needle when when we have guests on here they say the fed made a huge policy mistake last year and they're making a huge one again this seems to be now consensus they're going to tighten so much that they drive us into a recession and we get like danny blanchflower style unemployment that's worse than inflation well, I, I don't think you see. See, I, I guess the issue is 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 what is a soft landing? To me, a soft landing might be a, a mild recession, right? So, if we get a recession that's, you know, somewhat similar to say the the early two thousands, um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the the worst case scenario for uh, for the economy. And if it's if it's short and uh, and mild, that that's actually a win for the Fed, right? Because the, the Federal Reserve, remember, they, they have two mandates, and right now they're not fulfilling one of their mandates by any stretch of the imagination, right? So, um, you, you can't say that they're fulfilling their stable price mandate at the moment, and you know they only have one real tool in order to fight that. So they're going to use it in the the only way that they can, and that's to hike interest rates. And um, now I actually think that that after this particular meeting, they, they're going to be within 100 basis points of being done. I mean, our our view is. Uh, here at Bloomberg Intelligence. 
diligence that they're going to hike to around four and a half percent. The market's currently priced for that. Um, you know, we might overshoot that a little bit in terms of pricing, but but I think ultimately they go to four and a half percent. They stay there for six months to a year, um, and then wait to see what happens in the economy. And as long as the economy doesn't completely fall out of bed, and as long as um, as inflation continues to come down, then then they're going to call that a win. And four and a half percent by long-term historical standards is usually around around where you'd expect the high to be. I'm not talking about the 1970s. But people are much more worried about it now. Even people who have lived through those, from uh, Barry Sternlich to um, Ray Dalio, uh, the, the alarm has been sounded. Four and a half percent, Dalio says, would knock the equity market down another 20 percent. Yeah, but the, 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 but the stock market is not the economy, right? They're, they're two different things. And, Fair. you know, so you're talking about a valuation issue. You're talking about, you know, multiples in, in equity markets. And as opposed to the, the overall... Um, the, the overall economic backdrop. And when you, when you look at right now, like, like the, the challenge that small businesses, for example, are having, which is a huge part of the, uh, of, of the U.S. economy, especially when it comes to jobs, it's more than half of the jobs in, in the country, um, you know, they can't find employees, right? And, and so, so, so one of the ironies is, is that they have to pay more or they have to work more hours themselves. And, and so, so that's one of the reasons why late aggregate labor income continues to climb, because, um, because the people who are working are making a lot more money. Right. So, so, so the, there's there's a, a the strange balancing act, and, and we in the markets look more at the markets, I think, a lot of times than we do at the overall broad aggregate economy, which is really what the Federal Reserve cares about. The Federal Reserve could care less if the stock market, if the S&P 500 is at 4,000 or 3,000. What they care about is, do people have jobs and are, is inflation stable? Right. And, and the, right. the stock market is only one indicator of how part of that is going. Everybody has jobs. Yep. All right. Hey, Ira, everybody's into college and NFL football right now. 30 seconds. What's the soccer match I need to focus on <laughs> in the next few days? Oh, uh, yeah, we have Champions League coming up, so it's going to be it's going to be a lot of those uh, those matches. And, and obviously, the uh, because of the Queen's um, because of the Queen's funeral, the Premier League matches are all going to have to be rescheduled in this already very tight, weird World Cup year. So, oh um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking out for that draw. Like, like when are the, all these matches going to be rescheduled for? Good stuff. See, you got to get to it, Matt. You got to get your your soccer report. And uh, we get that from Ira Jersey. That's kind of his main gig gig his side hustle he's chief u.s interest rate strategist for bloomberg intelligence he's been doing that decades on wall street but he's also a uh, owner of a minor league soccer club real central new jersey go figure or something like that collaborate for a greener future at the bloomberg green festival a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology science and entertainment Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get right to our next guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence. She was a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas as well. Danielle, thanks for so much for being in our studio today. It's always great to have you in here. Uh, just, it just seems like everybody's just, the base case is the, the Fed's behind. They're going to overdo it. They're going to push this into recession. Is that what's going to happen? Well, I think that's a given. I mean, I, I, th- I think given? that is, I, I think it's a given. Sure. Oh, man. All right. 
Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look, your, your third quarter GDP estimates are somewhere around a half a percent. Right. right. Third quarter. That means that you're likely going to get, by the time the September data percolate through the data, you're going to get a third negative print in a row. And I, right. I really don't think we're going to be just. Quarters. Sorry. Three quarters in a row then. Of, of a negative print. Yeah. yeah. And even if unemployment is still less than 4%, um, the NBER is going to have to say, okay, it's a recession. Well, industrial production started to tick down. And you know, at the end of the day, when you start to hear the magnitude of the FedEx and the Ford announcements, you're yeah. like, okay, I don't think they're messing around. Right. So, and you know, everybody's trying to, as gently as possible, say cost cuts. You know, except for the 67% of CEOs who are like, we'll welcome the resignations if people just want to work from home. Bring it on. So yeah. they're not being shy anymore. So, but what if the Fed's got an ulterior motive? What, well, okay, what is that? You don't think they're just trying to fight inflation? Or no. do you not even think that's their main goal? Mm -mm. No, and I don't because we all, I, I think people tend to forget that, that Jay Powell is not a PhD in economics. He's a lawyer. He looks at both sides of every single story. He can read real-time data. He understands what Zillow's saying. He understands that if you plot forward new car inventories, mm -hmm. their growth rate, uh, that they're going to be coming down in 12 months. He sees that homes under construction are at the highest since God knows when the 70s. He, he understands all the real-time data because he was, he was always a practical guy. He was always a banker. So, you know, he... He sees what's happening, so but he and yet he's pushing forward based on the red herring of super lagged data. Why, unless he's got another plan? What's so the you, other plan? Do you think? I think he wants to break the back of the Fed put, and I think explain he wants to change the, the name of the Eccles Building to the Powell Building. Okay, explain what you kind of mean about that. So, in the aftermath of the the Black, plunge protection Black team. Monday of 1987, you know, um, Greenspan leaked information to fixed income trading desks all across Wall Street prior to the Fed injecting liquidity into the markets. The birth of the Fed put, okay. October the 20th, 1987. Who in the world is a big, Paul's big enough day person? At work, by the way, <laughs> there you got October the 20th. Yeah. So, but so, but you need to be a huge. You have to, your constitution has to be huge to break investors psyche after that why would you want to do that well i i think i think if, if you look at fed powell and you look at his net worth north of 150 million dollars why would he want to do that he doesn't need the pension unless he wants to have monetary policy be independent and not have the the the, the tail wag the dog so it's to, altruistic to use that i i don't think he's not there for you think he's just being a good person i don't think he do you really think he's enjoying himself no, I mean, I think it's great if, uh, if that's the case. That's, that's restoring my hope in humanity. If he's not, wait, he, wait, you he's watching a controlled demolition. <laughs> he's watching one company after another go bankrupt. And so far, there's nothing systemic that's been unleashed. If he can manage to do this and break the mindset until the job is, you know what until the job is done means? That means I'm going to keep it up there for a long time. I'm going to, we're going to get up to four, four and a half, and then I'm going to keep it there as long as I can. I can't believe the Biden administration will let him do that. Um, he has veto power there. It's, he's in for four years. Right. Okay. If Trump couldn't fire him for cause, no, he's right, not getting so fired what, for cause. So what will you be looking for in his language tomorrow in his response to questions that may have those ulterior motive type resilience patterns. or resilience. longer term Danielle Fortitude. because I think uh, I always think about the stories of Paul Volcker and how you know there was tractors in Washington DC oh, yeah. causing traffic people were throwing bricks through the window you know um, mailing him nasty things the man of the many death threats we forget that we've got him up on this huge pedestal and yet at the time he was vilified but Ken Powell 
sustain that kind of, if we get a recession that's deep or think, long, if we get unemployment that's high With and deference to the building that I'm in, yeah. think about how the media's narrative shifted last week. Is he gonna hurt the rest of the world? Right. All of a sudden he went from, this guy can't fight inflation out of a bag, to, oh, he's the bad guy. He's gonna hurt us. So when the narrative changes in the media, watch out. But one way or another, he's going to be the fall guy, and he's not stupid enough to know he's not going to be the fall guy. To not know he's going to be the fall guy. He right. knows he's going to be the fall yeah. guy one way or another, but why not accomplish something really important along the way? Uh, and get central clearing. Of, this is the best hit we've done all day. Yep. Look, SEC Gensler, Gensler said, look, they also want central clearing of treasuries. Bring it on, Powell. Just do it. Um, fascinating take. Uh, I really think... I'm speechless. Yeah. What do we do? I mean, I think tomorrow, I mean, I was going to ask you stupid questions about what does 359 mean on treasuries or do you care about the inversion? I think the inversion is meaningless. I I, I find it to be very quaint that the sell side's like, once the twos tens hits negative 48 basis points, we recommend you sell. I mean, take, take your money off the table. I'm like, what if it's 48 basis points next year at this time? By the way, I, uh, now you kind of have answered this in a sense, but we have a listener writing in asking, do you think the Fed really reads any of the fixed income strategists out there? Or do they just rely on their internal Fed color? Nah, somebody who founded the industrials group at the Carlisle and understands private equity and hang, hangs out with hedge fund guys. I don't, I don't think he reads all that research. All right. She's I'm kidding. Great stuff. I know. Being very I know, sarcastic. I know. Great stuff. Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. U.S. Steel. Yeah. X is the ticker you put into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, you pop it in there, and that's what you get. Rich Fruhoff, Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer for U.S. Steel, is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is so cool. Matt and I, we want to talk more company stuff, and it doesn't get more company stuff than U.S. Steel. And here's a little tidbit for you. The only company in the U.S. that mines, melts, and manufactures steel uh, and now they're making the, the commitment to sustainability. Rich, thanks so much for coming into our studio here. Is that in the U.S. or, or, or worldwide? Enterprise-wide, worldwide. So we've got a presence in Slovakia, but then, of course, a lot here in the U.S. So our sustainability commitment is across the enterprise. But even Arcelor doesn't do all of that entire vertical. I, you know, I think they are, let's be fair, they're a good company. They're very committed to sustainability, but um, we feel like we've got a uh, best-in-class program. How do you smelt steel or whatever the verb is how do you make steel in a sustainability i think of pittsburgh and the smokestacks and all that kind of stuff allentown allentown absolutely close to here how do you from a technological perspective what changes are you making how do you do that yeah absolutely so first of all you know i have this kind of strange title right sustainability and strategy that's purposeful so sustainability for us it's not a bolt-on it's not an add-on it's core to the strategy so when you're asking about steel making technologies there's really two basic ways to make steel As you said, there's the old kind of blast furnace, you mine uh, iron ore, you you put it into a blast furnace, you use coal that's turned into coke, very CO2 intensive, right? Then you can also, now because of the presence of scrap steel, old cars, old washing machines, old bridges, you cut that up, you put it into what's called an electric arc furnace. It's about 75% less greenhouse gas emissions when you recycle that steel. You put that scrap in the electric arc furnace, you blast it with electricity. If your electricity is coming from renewables or nuclear, very low carbon intensity, you're recycling the steel. The beauty of steel, it's the most recycled uh, product on earth. And every time you recycle it, it doesn't lose any of its performance characteristics. So we have embarked in what we call best for all 
we, uh, our strategy, we have been moving more and more toward this electric arc furnace uh, process route to make steel. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we bought Big River Steel in Arkansas, uh, cutting edge, LEED certified, the only LEED certified steel mill in the United States. Uh, got Daimler's Global Sustainable Supplier of the Year Award last year, and it became the first steel company, steel mill in North America to receive responsible steel certification. Responsible steel is a um, kind of a global standard for right. uh, responsible steel making with a focus on climate change. So uh, there's a lot to do there. We launched uh, last year as well a line, a brand, we call it Verdex, X for the Verd for green, X for our ticker symbol of uh, low carbon intensity steels. And that's what the customers want. The automotive customers, they're increasingly looking for that. If you think about electric vehicles, you know, if you want to buy an electric vehicle, don't you want your steel? Uh, in yeah, the you want the whole thing to be um, sustainable, not just uh, the fact that you're getting energy from electricity, hopefully solar generated or wind, but you want the, the build, building of the car as well to be sustainable. Is this how you want to separate yourself from the pack? Because if I throw up U.S. Steel on a chart with Alcoa and Arcelor or any of the big steel makers, uh, the stock chart, they all look the same. You know, the correlation is one pretty much. Yeah, so I think, you know, when we think about it from a strategy perspective, and by the way, I used to work at Alcoa, so a great company has had a, a, a commitment to sustainability. I'm just saying all the steel companies yeah. seem to follow the same uh, stock price pattern. So um, it's hard to outperform or underperform all of them over a long period of time. They all run in the same uh, basket. Well, you're exactly right. There is that sort of compression, right? Um, and so when I said, uh, you know, our sustainability program and our strategy are uh, intertwined, what I really meant about that is certainly the customers want uh, sustainable solutions, whether it's the automotive customers. So we see an ability there to differentiate ourselves commercially. But back to this move to electric arc furnaces, they are very efficient, um, not just from a greenhouse gas perspective, but uh, from a cost perspective, they're very lean. And so Big River Steel, which we bought, uh, we've doubled down this uh, this past spring. We announced we're going to expand at Big River, double the capacity to about six two six three million tons of steel making. It's very cost effective, um, and so we see that as the path forward, both to help us differentiate uh, from a performance perspective, from a free cash flow generation perspective, uh, from our peers, but also from a sustainability perspective. And you know, one of the things we're doing is investing in the products we see in the future. Um, I mentioned Vertex, but one of the other things we're doing, uh, if you think about electric vehicles, it's not just do you want to sell to your customer a low greenhouse gas uh, car, steel on the car, you actually need steel. Steel is part of the solution yep. because you need what's called non-grain oriented electrical steel to oh, make boy. the motors that go into EVs. So we're, uh, we've invested in a 200,000 ton non-grain oriented electrical steel line should be coming online at Big River sometime next year. So what percentage of your steel production today is, you know, the more sustainable that you mentioned your technology versus and maybe what are your goals maybe th three to five years down the road? Yeah, so right now, I mean, look, we're at, uh, I would say we're moving toward half and half. We're not there yet yeah. uh, in North America um, in terms of the uh, balance between uh, the integrated and the uh, um, uh, mini mill, the electric yep. arc furnace. Electric I think arc. longer term, we put out in our sustainability report, we call it our uh, roadmap, you know, and as we think going longer term, you know, 30 years out, we have uh, uh, a net zero target we set for 2050. 
And we see in the first 10 years of that 30-year journey, more electric arc furnaces. Right now in the United States, about two-thirds of steel production is through the electric arc furnace route. Uh, One-third is through the blast furnace. And interestingly, you know, we think of Europe as the leader in sustainability. It's flipped there. Hmm. Two-thirds are blast furnaces. One-third are electric arc furnaces. In China, a lot of blast furnaces. Yeah. So oh. we see that I, as a way to move forward, both from a strategy perspective and also from a sustainability perspective. Love to get your take on um, well, the Ford announcement today uh, was interesting because all of the um, cost problems that we may have thought were past us are clearly still front and center. Do you face the same kind of uh, issues with uh, raw materials, costs, inflation? Well, I think everybody, you know, I'm a child of the 70s. So, you know, the inflation, it's like a little bit of a deja vu again, but all over again to quote Yogi Berra. But, you know, um, I, our benefit, our advantage is we also may, uh, mine iron ore. We're one of the largest iron ore miners in the United States. So we have this vertical integration. So you can hedge that, basically. We have that, absolutely. Yeah. It, it gives us, I think, a competitive advantage that iron ore, uh, we mine about 22 million tons of iron ore in Minnesota. Now, coal costs have gone through the roof. I and mean, when you talk about Europe uh, making it with a blast furnace, I think, damn, that's got to be expensive. And um, they don't really have any other ways of cre creating electricity right now. Yeah, certainly Europe uh, challenged for sure on the electricity front. Um, and so that's, a, I think, a, you know, we're going to have to see what the EU does in terms of policy actions there. Uh, yep. You know, on the flip side, we do have a business that's, uh, we call it our tubular segment. It's in the oil country tubular goods. Right. And with the need to move LNG to Europe yep. uh, and the increase in drilling uh, here in the United States, that business is doing really well. All right, Rich, great to have you uh, in our studio here. Rich Fruhoff, he is the Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer for U.S. Steel. And the ticker symbol again is X to put into your Bloomberg terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to get to one of the big stories we've been covering today, and that is Ford. The company's stock has been decimated in the market, down by 10% after saying that is that, the accurate. Yes, a lot of people use think of decimated. decimated thinks reduced to 10% of its former self, but decimated is actually reducing. I just think by. people use it just as a just down big. You know. True. Yes. Okay. Well, anyway, it is down big um, because they said. Costs are going to be up by over a billion dollars in the quarter, and that's going to obviously um, put a real uh, weight on margins. But their full-year forecast remains unchanged. David Welch joins us. He is our go-to reporter out of the Detroit Bureau for all things automotive. David, um, uh, well, and Detroit Bureau Chief, my producer reminds me, but yes, uh, <laughs> he mainly keeps tabs on these car makers for us. David, um you know, this was a bit of a surprise for me because I have been thinking maybe the supply chain uh, problems, commodity inflation is in the rearview mirror. Um, what did you think? We've made that mistake probably many times. And the car companies themselves have told us over the last two years, particularly in relation to semiconductors, that, oh, yeah, second half of this year, um, it should get better. And 
I think they really do uh, at times believe that, and then something else happens. Um, you know, in, in some of these cases, there, you, know, you could have pandemic shutdowns in Asia that, that cause supply chain problems and jack up pricing for certain commodities. But this one feels different than the, the COVID and semiconductor-related issues we've had. This seems more just general inflationary, uh, and it, that's what the Fed is fighting today. That's what I think many economies around the globe are mm-hmm. fighting. Um, what is a little bit surprising? You know, David, brought, go ahead. Now, I was just wondering how much of this is, you know, just pure inflation for some of their inputs versus still some lingering supply chain issues that may be pushing up, you know, the prices here. Did, did the company delineate any of that? Not really. Uh, the best we kind of have is they did say it's inflation related. Okay. okay. And then we've got analysts, Ryan Brinkman from JP Morgan, saying that higher, higher inflation related supplier costs seem to have a higher chance of recurring um, as, a, you know, in, as opposed to chip shortages. This doesn't yeah. seem chip related. This okay. seems like general inflation out there for the parts they buy. Fuel is still, it's come down, but it's still expensive and, and, and everything they, you know, all of those 30,000 parts have to be shipped someplace. Uh, you know, 30,000 parts to make one vehicle. So, look, it's just general in- inflationary kind of stuff. And, you know, one thing, and this is the reason I was a little surprised, the car companies always tell us in inflationary periods like this, or if there's a certain commodity that, that is on the rise, that they've got these long-term contracts locked in that protect them for a significant period of time. But it sounds like either for some of these things, they've either run out of that runway or – they had to renegotiate contracts just to get stuff. I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, but the, the net result is, you know, they're talking about a billion dollars more in costs. And if you look, you know, Ford stock is down 9%. GM stock is, almost, is down almost 5%. Yeah. GM has not issued a similar warning, but they buy a lot of the same things. So does Toyota, so does everybody else. So the, the next shoes that could drop could be similar issues at other uh-huh. car companies. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll be watching closely to see if we hear anything from the competitors. What do we know about specific models? I have a friend, a buddy of mine out of Boulder, who ordered a Bronco before my daughter was born two years ago and still hasn't gotten it. And, you know, I'm starting to see more of them on the road, but I'm thinking this is such a slam dunk vehicle for Ford. If they could only make more of these so cool and doesn't cost so much, um, it just would be a huge seller. Are, are, are those all sitting on the lots waiting for chips? In many cases, you have that. And that's really, that's what Ford's talking about here, is that in the quarter, uh, they see a lot of vehicles just sitting on lots waiting for chips. I'm a little surprised that someone's waiting two years on a vehicle. I've heard people waiting six or eight months, but not that long. So, yeah, you do have a, a lot of vehicles sitting on lots. I, I drove by the General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan, a few weeks ago, and they, you know, they make heavy-duty pickup trucks out there, a big money maker and a, and a very popular vehicle. And were, there were a sea of trucks in the parking lot, mm. and those trucks are all waiting on chips or some module that contains a chip. And when GM gets them in, they'll pop it in and put it on the truck hauler and send it off to some dealerships. But in the meantime, they're gathering dust out in the yard, and there's just a lot of that going on industry-wide. Oh, I know how that feels. David, is the I waited on my Silverado. Actually, it felt like an eternity, but... It... You're right. It wasn't more than six to eight months. It was right. like seven. Yeah. Hey, we got it now. David, are, are, is it days of 17 million SAR? Are those days over? Well, they're over for the foreseeable future because no one can build enough yep. to, you know, to satisfy that kind of demand. But 
automotive pricing is still very high. There are still people waiting on vehicles. There are people not even shopping because they know they can't find what they want. So we'll have pent-up demand for a while. The, the, so if they can build the vehicles, they, they can get to whatever, you know, whatever the, the million vehicles is for the year that, that, uh, that they can build because people will buy them. Um, the issue is with getting back to 17 million going forward, does, do these interest rate cuts and inflation and all of the other economic crosswinds, headwinds that are going on out there, does that push some of these people who've been shopping or waiting to the sidelines mm-hmm. out of lack of consumer confidence, lack of a job? And really, right now, employment's great. Yep. Everyone's working who wants to have, you know, who wants to work. So there's money being made out there and plenty of people can buy vehicles but does that all cool off because of yeah. what the fed may do today and has already done so yeah. and that's the thing first wave here is supply chain problems semiconductors and inflation second wave is you know even if even if that gets back to normal what happens to the right. consumer what happens to the economy yep all right david great stuff as always david welch uh, he's the detroit bureau chief for bloomberg news covering all things autos again ford Down about 9.5% today on higher costs. It is a treat for Matt and I because we have Barry Ritholtz. He is the Ritholtz Wealth Management dude. He's got a Masters in Business podcast, which just rips. And he's in studio for the next 15 minutes. How good is that? I'm excited. All right. Let's talk, uh, let's talk to our next guest about what's going on in the Ukraine. Let's do that. David Zakin, CEO and founder of Key Elements Group. David, I guess just my first question here is, this has been a disaster from day one. How much of a risk is this in Russia to Mr. Putin? Thank you for having me here. Now that the dust has settled a bit, we can begin to understand the events of the last weeks. In this decisive counteroffense, Ukrainian forces managed to retake more territory than Russia has seized since April. The effect on morale that this victory has that cannot be overstated. Ukrainian forces liberated about 7% of occupied territory in just one week. Um, Russia's desperation is now manifesting in weapons purchase from regimes like North Korea and Iran, which are also signaling that Russian industry is struggling to keep up even with production of weapons. So straight answer to threat at home, remember, Russia is a petro-state, run by counter-intel Politburo, all major decisions done by Putin himself and three others. And they're under tremendous threat and pressure. Uh, Today, as we we noticed, Parliament has passed a law introducing concept of mobilization and martial law. I want to bring it first. First, I just want to explain to listeners why we're asking you about this, because you are an expert in crisis management. You advise politicians as well as multinational brands about how to deal with um, such crises. And, you know, surely Vladimir Putin seems like someone who needs some advice right now. What what would you tell him? Um, Unfortunately or fortunately, he wouldn't listen to my advice because (laughs) He's in. Uh, he's surrounded by uh, in t- counter intel Politburo, and uh, their way of dealing with this is double down. My advice would be uh, find a way to communicate to Ukraine, leave the territory, go back to February 23 borders. But they wouldn't listen. Uh, so this is how they doubling down now, and I would would expect that they will not listen to anybody at this stage yet. 
So let's talk a little bit about the end game. It sounds like, well, first, is it too early to be discussing the end game? And second, what sort of options does Putin have, short of tactical nuclear weapons, to, to resolve this in a way that doesn't dramatically undercut his support at home? Look, Russian army, <clears throat> modus operandi, so far, was brutality against innocent civilians. Um, um, expert community talk about potential attack, but if you remember the size of the table Putin has when he meets somebody, he's not suicidal. So <laughs> at the end of the day, um, I don't see him moving into that direction. Beyond nuclear strikes, my main concern is the Parisia nuclear power station. If you remember, mm-hmm. this is one of the largest in Europe. And any and all military activity within striking distance of the plant poses a great risk to the entire European continent. And Russian forces play with fire around the area. And this is displaying total disregard for human life as a concept. Right. So I don't see him going that crazy. He's not suicidal. But I see him doubling down and um, uh, holding referendum uh, right. in uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, Lugansk, and then saying to Ukrainians and Western partners, how about you guys having war now at Russian territory? Right. It's called Russia now. All right. I mean, it's obviously a difficult situation. We'll have to see how it plays out. Lots of twists and turns coming up, no doubt. David Zakin, CEO and founder of Key Elements Group there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.